It's a privilege to be with you this morning. Thank you, Justin and the elders, for the invitation to open the word here. Um, I would only add to what uh, Justin has said about uh, my the, the, the familiar faces I, I know here in, uh, in Albuquerque is that it, it is a particular delight. I'm really glad to see uh, Joanna. Um, something you may not know, but she... She was with us at a very critical time in our technological development. You know, I'm surrounded by this digital wizardry. This was something we knew nothing of when I came to Ithaca 25 years ago. Um, we had an overhead projector. Uh, some of you will remember that, a few of you. But um, Joanna was a large and in charge as the commander of the overhead projector and was there when we retired it and went digital. So she fits at a strategic time in our lives. And uh, I'm particularly glad to see Gary again. Gary was my assistant for six years while Kira was in grad school preparing to come teach here. Um, and I have to say they were the, the sweetest of the 25 years to be able to serve alongside him and with him. So thank you. Uh, so this is family day and I... Sunday, and I understand the kids are going to be, some of the kids are going to be staying in here, so let me just quickly talk to you guys for a second before I read the sermon text. Uh, for those of you who are kids, and you can be whatever age you want to be for this, but uh, how many of you are terrified of riding on a roller coaster? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, you know what it's like. Uh, for those of you who have dared to go, you know, there's the click, 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 click when you're going up, and then there's that moment at the top when you know what about, what's about to happen and your imagination is filled with how much terror you're going to have, how scared you're going to be, and you're all prepared to scream, and then down you go, and some of you keep your eyes open, and you scream at the top of your lungs, and then zip, zip, whoosh, and then sooner than you wanted, you're back where you started. But there is that unforgettable moment of terror when... You're riding that roller coaster and you just feel like your lungs are going to jump out of your chest and your brain is going to explode and you make it back safely to the, to the station and you get out all wobbly need. And sometimes you say, let's go again. <laughs> or maybe there's the, been this strange person who lives in, near you in your neighborhood and when you walk to school or when you walk to the grocery store, you've got to go by this house and it's a little creepy it was, a, it was a house like that in my neighborhood, and, and we'd all kind of, my, my buddies in the neighborhood, we'd all kind of, kind of dare each other, you know, how close would you be willing to get to this creepy house, you know, and, and then one of us would kind of inch forward and the other would poke him, you know, and, <laughs> be scared to death, and then the guy in the house would come out. It was like, ah, here he comes. A lot of things in life scare us. Sometimes because they're fun, sometimes because they're awful. Um, I'm recovering from cancer. And even if you're a young person, you may know a person who's died of cancer. And how terrible that is, how sad that is, and how afraid you can be, how much fear that sometimes puts within you. Um, I'm happy to tell you that by God's grace, I'm cancer-free. Um, you can say amen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
I'm, I'm Presbyterian, but I'm not opposed to being Pentecostal. <laughs> um, but there are just a lot of things in life which scare us. And in our text today, we're going to look at two things that scare the disciples. First is being on a ship in the middle of a storm. And the disciples, who are, they're professional fishermen, but they are scared to death. They're afraid they're going to die. And then we meet, we're going to meet this very scary man. He's so strong that he can rip chains apart. And he cuts himself. And he yells. We're going to meet some, some scary events and we're going to meet some scary people. And we're also going to meet Jesus who's in the midst of all those scary things. In fact, he's asleep in the middle of the storm, not because he doesn't care, but because he's God and he knows how the story ends. So, uh, if you would, please stand and let's read God's word together. We're reading from the end of Mark 4 and the beginning of Mark 5. Now, I don't know who invented the chapter divisions, but this is a lousy division. You know, they're not, the divisions aren't inspired, but these belong together. Why? Because in the end of chapter 4, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. What's on the other side? The beginning of Mark 5. So we'll read them together. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall or storm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. It was about to sink. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, be still, be quiet. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. And when Jesus... And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name, don't torture me? For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. 
And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. The evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. And the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Those who were tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, dressed, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home. Go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the people were amazed. This is God's word. You may be seated. You may be seated. You may know the story of Captain Private, Captain John Miller, Company C, 2nd Ranger Battalion. In the middle of the Battle of Normandy, he was sent not to ascend the walls, but to um, rescue a single man. You may know this story. It's the film, Saving Private Ryan. To save that one man, to save Private Ryan, it cost almost the entire unit that was sent to save him. And there is something very much like that about this story, this mission on which Jesus embarks. He is going across the the lake, he's going across the water to find one man. And so this is the story. As we look at the significance of what is in this text today, I want to first begin by emphasizing the fact that that this is a, a mission. Jesus says, we're going to the other side for a reason. He doesn't tell the disciples what it's what it's about. They don't know what they're going to find, but he says, we're going to the other side. And what happens here, I believe, is preparation. He's taking them through circumstances in which they have to trust him. He's introducing the people over which they, apart from him, are powerless to help. Because in chapter 6, just a few pages later, he sends them out on their own. And so there is something about this mission that is training them for what he has sent them to do and what he sends us to do. So I want to look first, think for a moment about the storm um, and 
Jesus questioned them, why are you afraid? Do you have no faith? Now, these disciples are professional fishermen. They are on, they're on their turf when they're on the water. They know how to handle a boat. Unlike me, I have an early childhood memory of my father attempting to be a sailor. My brother has this memory too. We spent more time horizontal than we did vertical on this little sailboat. Uh, and I'm here, I remember it might, being in my puffy orange life preserver, just clinging to the side for my life. My mother's on the shore screaming and not a good experience. But these guys know what they're doing. And they're about, truly, the, the boat is about to be swamped. And they know that, that unless there's some intervention, that the, the likelihood is that they're going down. And yet Jesus is untroubled by all of this. Jesus is undisturbed by the circumstance. It's not that he doesn't care. Don't mistake that for his not caring. But he understands more than they do. And what we see in this moment is this challenge that you and I face in just much of life, whether it's parenting, whether it's our, our jobs, whether it's relationships, whether it's health or anything like that, our competence is always being challenged. Are we able to meet the challenges that we face? And we also mistake the hardship that we face, the, the complications of life as, as the, the real issue. But it, it's never the ultimate issue. There are, you know, sickness and, and hardship, they're, they're real things. I'm not saying that they're not. But even underneath all of that is the challenge. In whom are you going to trust in those moments? And Jesus says, you can trust me. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. And when they see what, what Jesus is able to do, even though he's done amazing things already, He's on their turf. He's in their world. He's with them when they are at the, the depth of their, in, their inability. And he says, trust me, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. We are constantly having to, to uh, resist our desire for control in our lives and to really focus on the certainty of God's mission to which he has called us and to which he has joined us. I mean, how do you, how do you know that the, that the mission to which we are called as, as brothers and sisters in Christ is, is not going to fail? Christ is risen. He has conquered sin and death and there is nothing in heaven on earth that will prevent him from bringing creation to completion, from bringing redemption to, to full completion. When once again he stands upon the earth and his toes curl into the soil of the world made new. Our boats may sink. But the mission will not fail. And the question is, are we willing for the boats to sink? Are we willing for our, for our weakness and incompetence and our limitations to be exposed? In order that the mission of God might be advanced. We think God's mission concedes succeeds when we succeed. But Jesus is teaching the disciples otherwise. In, when Jesus teaches us to pray, you know, you're probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, heart in heaven, may your name be hallowed. This is a prayer for the world. This is a prayer for your neighbors. This is a prayer for, for the whole earth that 
people everywhere would come to worship the true and the living God. Jesus says, this is what you pray for. May your kingdom come. May our lives be ordered by the kingdom of God. May your will be done. May our hearts be changed in such a way so that we gladly inhabit the kingdom of God more than the United States, more than any other country in the world, more than any other association that we may have. That's what we pray for. And then to do that, may, may you give us the bread that we need for today. May I have not just food to feed my belly, but the courage to ride out the storm, the courage to face death, the courage, the wisdom as parents to know what to say to your children, kids, the wisdom to know what to say to your friends when they're unkind to you, when they are cruel to you. Are we trusting in Jesus to get us where we need to go? The second part of this story is the demons. Now, one of the things you may notice as you read the Gospels is that there is a whole lot of de demonic activity going on around Jesus. I mean, it seems like everywhere he's turned, there's, there's a demon-possessed person confronting him, and, and he frees them. And there's this, when you read the Gospels, it's, it's so intense, it's so pervasive uh, that it seems like that's kind of normal. But when you step back just a bit and you look at the, the larger panorama of biblical history, that density, that intensity that surrounds Jesus is not as great throughout the wider band. It doesn't mean that there is no demonic activity in the world, but the intensity is around Jesus because of who he is. Satan himself, he doesn't send his minions, Satan himself, the great deceiver, the great liar, the great destroyer of the world, Satan himself comes to Jesus to take him down. And he also sends his minions to do his work and to bring destruction. So, it is true that the demonic will come into our lives when we invite them. I'm confident that as believers, they cannot inhabit us as Christians, as, as those that are inhabited by God's Spirit, as we, we see this man who is inhabited by demons, that the Spirit of God takes up residence within us and among us. But don't be mistaken, because we may not see the demonic in our lives the way that we see it around Jesus, don't be deceived into thinking that the demonic is not present and the day that the devil and his minions are not at work. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Now, those principalities, powers include the unseen realm, the demonic that is the, 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 the enemy that is deceiving and seeking to destroy and to distract. It also includes those principalities and powers of our own creation, the systems that we have created that are tools of the enemy to bring injustice and suffering to facilitate our selfishness and greed in the world. But he does not need to inhabit us to bring destruction into the world. Uh, he is at work using whatever means is available to him uh, with all of his minions. We are not to live in fear, but we must not be naive either. 
that Satan is at work and we need the the arms of God's the, the, the armament of God's provision not to fight but to endure. But so many of us experience the the oppression of the influence of, of all that the damage and the destruction that Satan has worked and his minions have, have worked and are working in the world. This man was was in our text was possessed by a legion of demons. And that is the explanation for his behavior. But some of you may read this and say, I know some of that. I know some of the despair, some of the loneliness. Some of you cut yourselves, wound yourselves in many ways, sometimes to express self-hatred. Some of you have contemplated suicide. Some of you live in caves of loneliness and isolation and withdrawal. Some of you rage and you treat others with anger and drive them away in fear that they might not get to know you or see your weakness. If any of that describes you, I would just say that, uh, that our text this morning is telling you Jesus is coming for you. He's coming for you. And then there is another aspect of this text. There is the story. Were you struck at all by the response that Jesus makes to this man after he's healed him? You know, he's, you know, how, why in the world would Jesus refuse this? I, I want to follow you. Oh, absolutely. Come on, get on board. Let's go. But he says to this man, no, you may not go with me. And even though the, 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 the details are brief, it, it is unmistakable, isn't it, that this man comes humbly to Jesus so overwhelmed with God's mercy and grace that there is no other place he wants to be than at the feet of Jesus. That Jesus says, no, I want you to go tell your story. I want you to go find your friends and... I want you to tell them how God has had mercy on you. Now, one of the reasons for this is not obvious in the text, but uh, you may have noticed that there are pigs in the story. We're about to get to that. Yeah, okay. Um, so, because of that little detail, you know that we're not in Jerusalem. We're not on Jewish territory. This man is a Gentile. This man is outside the covenant community. And just like Jesus does in John 4 and goes to the Samaritan woman, here he goes across the, the lake to find this man. And, and why is he doing that? Well, you have to go all the way back to Genesis 12. When God commissions his cause to Abraham and he says, to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will come to know me because of you. It was their charge, it was their gospel charge to, to live in such a way that the immigrants were welcomed into their community 
People from every tribe and tongue and nation were to, be, were to come and to be gathered so that they may hear and they may see and they may, be, they, they may believe. They, they didn't do a very good job of that, so God says, okay, well, I'll take you to the nations. And he sends them into exile. But by the time we get to the New Testament, there is no sense that God's people are interested in anything other than God's people. In fact, they've built the walls. They've, they, they've very much created an insider-outsider mentality. And if you're not one of us, you're, you're dogs. You're scum. And so Jesus goes to this man to do what Abraham was charged to do, what Israel was charged to do, to go to the nations. And Jesus goes to fulfill all the covenant that God had charged to do. But as Jesus sends this man, it is a reminder for us that this is what Jesus does to us. There is in this encounter something of what we are doing this morning. We are gathering for worship. We are coming to hear the voice of God through the means of grace, through his word. And, and if Jesus were here, and he is here, and I hope speaking in his name, I speak faithfully when I say, get out of here. Go tell your story. Go live your lives among people who know you so that they might see and know the mercy of God. Okay, now what you've all been waiting for is the pigs. What about the pigs? The pigs get more ink in this story than anybody else, so that must mean something. But I would say, first of all, the first thing to know about the pigs is that they demonstrate the fact that Jesus is there among the pigs is what I have just said, Jesus' love for the nations. Uh, his love for the nations of the world, uh, his demonstration in this act of kindness that he is committed to what we see in the end in Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and nation with all of their, their cultural distinctives, with all of their creational beauty and, and, and the, 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 the mosaic, the kaleidoscope of, uh, that is cre uh, creational among us is brought to the king of the new heavens and the new earth. But secondly, the pigs dramatize the reality of deliverance. How do you know that you have been set free? Well, there's, there's the pigs. What troubled me is not troubling me anymore. It, there is a correspondence here to the change in the man's life. He is clothed. He is in his right mind. He is not the man he was. And so we, we read throughout the New Testament, Paul says of those who are being transformed by the good news of the gospel, such were some of you. But now you are living in the hope of the gospel. You are living lives that are being renewed and being restored day by day. St. Peter says in his second letter, look in the mirror. You can see what God is doing to change your life. And I think part of that is how we see each other. 
I, I just watched uh, a really incredible, um, I don't know what, how to describe it, a, a show uh, in and of itself. And the question of the show is, how do you see yourself? It's marvelously personal and, um, and thoughtful. Do you, are you what you simply perceive yourself to be? Or is something essential about who we are knowable only because others see it in us? And this is why the gospel is so true. As Paul says it so eloquently in Romans 8, you, you must know that how, what God thinks of when he looks at you, he sees you as someone who is forgiven and righteous. More than that, he sees you as someone who is full of glory, who is worthy of honor, someone he loves. And how do we see one another? And are we willing to say that to each other? As we see the change happening, are we willing to say, you know, I hope you don't mind my saying this, but you, you're a whole lot less angry than you used to be. I'm really glad. Or I'm just really humbled by how patient you are. Thank you. Thirdly, what about the pigs? It's the pigs are a demonstration of the destructive power of the enemy. This is what the enemy would do to you if he could. We know that from Job, right? Satan comes to, to God and says, and God, you know, thank you, God, uh, for, Job says, for making me a case study. Um, but thanks for your confidence, too. Uh, Satan says, let me have at Job, and I'll prove you that he, that he doesn't really love you. And God says, okay, you can do what you want up to a certain point. And what Satan does is horrific. But you know, you know that if he could, he would have destroyed Job, body and soul. And the, the affliction that we see from the enemy in the pages of Scripture and even in our lives, we know that the enemy would destroy us if he could. He would rip us limb from limb. He would... He would drag us to hell with him if he could. But we have been freed from that power by the resurrection of Christ, by the mercy and the, and the saving grace of God. We think of the influence of, of Satan and sin in the world as, you know, okay, they're peccadilloes, they're small things, it's not a big deal. We're indifferent to the things that are not fruits of the Spirit that, that hinder us from maturing into Christ's likeness. And we treat them lightly. But look at the pigs. That is the power that is at work in you to deceive you, to think that it doesn't matter, that it's just a small thing, that, oh, I'll get over it, God won't mind. That is the power that is at work to deceive you and to destroy you if it could. As Peter says, he will maul you. He will scar you. He will do as much as he can 
Don't be deceived that these little things in our lives that we are indifferent to are not really part of this great power that Satan wields against us. But fourthly and and lastly about the pigs, are they not a demonstration of how much Jesus loves this man and how much God loves you? Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, are you not of more value than than a sparrow that falls from a tree? Are you not of more worth than the flowers that bloom and are just cast into the oven after they bloom? Are you not of more value than a quarter million dollars in today's economy worth of pigs? Yes, you are. How do you know that you are worth so much to God? Jesus says, look at my scars. Look at my body. It is the body made alive to tell you in every way possible that I love you. And I have not only crossed a lake, but I have crossed heaven and earth to pursue you as God has done from the beginning. Adam, Eve, where are you? And so he comes after us because he loves us. I'm sure over the years, um, Justin has gotten a lot of doodle art. I know you kids are doodling, and who knows what you're drawing. I'm sure it's marvelously creative. Um, and they like to, you know, he may have a little collection of, of art that has been given to him over the years. When I first preached this a couple years ago, one of our grad students, a vet student, came up to me afterwards and he says, uh, I wrote a poem, I wrote a sonnet during your sermon. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Uh, it's a really good sonnet, so I'd like to share it with you. While you sat in darkness with your legion, The fleety world around you only looked that it might sidestep your sunless region and pass through your vicinity unbrooked, unbothered by your screaming and your noise, your body so unseeming in its shame, the weeping cuts that advertised the void that robbed you of your person and your name. Behold, my child, my babe, my bairn, my love. See you the rain clouds hovering on the lake. Felt you the storm that roared and roiled above. See you the speck of sail caught in its wake. Aboard that boat, for you now comes my man. And before you ask the question, yes, he can. Yes, he has. Yes, he has come for you. Will you come to him? Yes, he has drawn us into the storm, into the great hardship and the terror and the suffering of life as we join him on his mission. Do not be surprised by the hardship. 
Do not be surprised by the cancer, by the death, by the injustice. Be honest about it. But we take our cues not from those hardships, but from the one who is asleep in the boat, the one who is with us. Yes, he is greater than the greatest evil in the world. We are joined to his mission and we get to see in part because of his resurrection moments and glimpses of the new creation. None of us can change the world. But we can in the way that we live righteously and justly and pursue peace. We can push back against the brokenness. We can push back against the darkness. And we can so live in such a way that that people catch a glimpse. They sit around your table as you show hospitality and they literally catch an aroma of the world made new. Yes, he wants you to tell your story, scars and all. You know, the man, the Gadarene man was liberated from the demons, but his body was unchanged. Scars of all the cutting were still there. The, and some of you, as you've lived long enough, you, you can be five years old and still have a scar in your heart from someone who really hurts you so deeply, it's hard to forget. Some of you have been abandoned in marriage. Some of you have been overlooked in jobs. Some of you have been dealt with unjustly in many ways. Some of you have committed great sins and great in our eyes, whatever that means. But they've left scars. They've left wounds in your body, in your heart, and in your mind. But the question is, are are we... And this is my charge to you as a particular congregation. Are you the kind of fellowship in which it is safe for people to tell their stories? When I was at the house I'm staying with, friends, um, the, the, the kids there, I was telling them about my cancer. And I said, oh, can we see your scar? <laughs> sure. <gasps> Jesus has kept his scars. He says to Thomas and to the disciples, here they are. Touch and see. One of the lines I love in Pilgrim's Progress is when Mr. Valiant for Truth comes to the river. He says, I'm leaving my my sword. I'm leaving my shield. He says, but my scars I am taking with me because they tell the story of how God has been faithful and good to me. And yes, he loves you more than you can imagine. His scars prove it. And I pray that as you hear the good news in our text today, that you will have the courage to know his love and to declare it to others. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we um, are afraid, are afraid that we are weak and powerless, that we are held captive by things of our own creation, 
we are suffering under the oppression that comes from the fallenness of the world, the work and destruction of the enemy. But we ask, Lord, that, that having come to you, that we would have the courage to endure the storm, to live through it, to be willing for the boat to go down, if that is really how the mission will go forward. May the mission matter more to us than our own security, our own safety, our own priorities. But Lord, may we have the courage, having known your grace, having, having begun that slow transformation. Lord, together, may, may we be a place where we can tell our stories and say, let me show you how God has been merciful to me. To that end, we ask for your blessing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.